The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. This is Steve Orlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Carrie Brown, who is Professor of Chinese Studies and Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College in London. If I went over <clears throat> all of his accomplishments in life, I would not have time for this discussion. <clears throat> he is the author of a recent book called CEO China, The Rise of Xi Jinping, and also the editor of Berkshire's Dictionary of Chinese Biography, Volume 4, which covers the period since 1949. Correct? That's right. Yeah. So let's start with the Dictionary of Chinese Biography. How difficult was that to edit, and how did you choose the people to include? How many people are included, and how did you choose them? I think it's a nice, uh, suspiciously round number of about 100. Uh, and I think William Burroughs said, you know, either be just or be arbitrary. So uh, it's a little bit arbitrary because we know that the narratives people have of Chinese history, contemporary history, are over, over political. And this was an attempt to create more diversity. So figures that are not usually thought of, actors, actresses, um, artists, and also figures who are probably brushed out a bit, dissidents, people that don't get treated uh, in the kind of mainstream narratives of Chinese modern history. So I think it's uh, trying to create this sense of a, a history which is very, very diverse and which has got different kinds of voices and giving those voices some kind of flavor so people know Chinese history is very multiform. As you edited this, did you learn stuff about some of the characters in it? Yeah, a huge amount. I mean, just details about people's political careers sometimes or I think the entry on Yao Ming, I just didn't know how he'd appeared, why he'd come to America. You know, you kind of tuck a lot of stuff away in your head that you think you know about people. And when you actually look at their CVs, you realize there were reasons why they were in particular places at particular times. And I, I really appreciated learning about that. Who is the book aimed at? What's your audience? I think people who are interested and intrigued by China, which means most people now, and who find it a bit intimidating. And the reason why we did the three volumes of the history beforehand and then this one was... Uh, China is actually a really wonderful history to learn about through stories and the easiest way to do that is through people's stories and in fact once you create the individual stories you get this sort of enormous you know kind of narrative of Chinese history which is very dramatic it's got full of color but it is just about particular people at particular times and that makes it much less intimidating. Now the book uh, I'm looking for exactly how many pages the book is but I th it's 568 pages mm -hmm. you edited the entire thing? Well, with great help, great help. I'm, I'm at the core, at the core of the editorial leadership. I'm, I'm the core of the editorial. As Xi Jinping is the core of the leadership in China, I'm the core of the leadership. And um, the other volumes were about 2,000 pages, and we also had great editors for that. So, so it goes back to the, the, the whole the set goes the whole, back to the, yep. the Shang Dynasty. The, yeah, that's right. It goes so back to the very 3, years. Yeah. Uh -huh. And just in terms of the, this volume four, the selection, I mean, did you just consult with many others in the selection of the people? Mm. Yeah, we have a very big network. So over the years, as anyone dealing with China, you have a big, big network. And just going to people and saying who 
do you think is a very representative figure? And this is actually not just about um, people in the People's Republic, it's about people in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and some overseas Chinese. So it does sort of give some sense of the enormous diversity and impact of ethnic Chinese in the rest of the world, not just in, in greater China. And have the Chinese, have you had reactions from people in China about, about the this whole, book? Yeah, about the whole series, I think people are very excited. In fact, I went to Shanghai, Shanghai Jiao Tong University, only last week, and they have this big festival of biography and encyclopedia, and uh, this was mentioned as one of the places that pieces that have been referred to in that. And it doesn't trouble them? This is, it's in English and it's written by Westerners? I think By and large people, Westerners, not all Westerners. Most people are, uh, in China are happy that people outside China want to know about their culture and their history and think that this is a good thing. You also have recently written this book about Xi Jinping, but it's kind of not entirely about, it's more about the political system of China. Why this book and why now? Well, it's hard to write a kind of um, biography of Xi Jinping because so much is not known. Uh, that's the way the system, as you know, works in China. And so I thought to try and write about Chinese politics in ways that we would write about American politics or British politics, we try and sort of bring different things in. We don't go on about factions and stuff like that. It's not very helpful. We try and get under the skin of people, work out who are the people around them, you know, their friendships, what they mean by friendship, and what their ideas are, because in politics, ideas matter. I mean, even politics now, ideas are still important. And I really wanted to write this book, you know, to sort of explain how ideas matter in China, how you build coalitions with people, and how Chinese politics is not so different to politics anywhere else. You say not much is known. An enormous amount is known about Xi Jinping. You think it's it's more propaganda than fact? Well, there is a narrative of his history. So he's different to Hu Jintao because Hu Jintao was more opaque and more difficult to understand and didn't actually refer to his personal biography. Uh, and I think in Xi Jinping's case, in his speeches, in Xinhua, for instance, produced this uh, biography of him soon after he came to power, there's a, an understanding that his story is actually a, an important political asset. And that in itself is quite a, an important point. The fact that the story of an individual in Chinese politics now is being used is, you know, kind of uh, is an important tactical move, I think, by the party. They want more personal politics. They feel that having this impersonal style leadership in the past didn't really work. Um, what I mean, though, is that I'm not able to, as you would with another figure, go and talk to people very easily that knew Xi Jinping in his past. Uh, it's not easy to really kind of go to people who work with him now, uh, as you know, and say, uh, you know, what was he like? What's he like to work with? I talk about the people around him, uh, you know, Wang Huning, Ding Xuexiang, Zhu Guofeng, people that are very kind of close advisors. These are not people that are accessible to... Yeah, they uh, don't you know, talk to gone. foreigners anymore. Yeah. So in that sense, it's um, there's lots of information, but whether this information is particularly helpful or meaningful, uh, it's hard to kind of assess it. You know, it, it's produced by an organisation which has made his autobiography a political asset. I always think that my kind of values and the way I thought about the world and American foreign policy were formed by the time I was 21 years old. You know, the war in Vietnam was the seminal experience in my kind of youth and shapes the way I think about America. Do you think in Xi Jinping's case that his father's fall from grace for that 13-year year period, it was the formative experience for him and kind of um, 
governs the way he thinks about the world today. I mean, I think the striking thing about the political generation that Xi Jinping belongs to is the Cultural Revolution obviously was an enormously uh, you know, formative part of their world. And, but it was a very specific kind of um, event. It's, it's not like any other event in contemporary Chinese history or modern Chinese history. And the fact that they have this in common in very different ways must be very meaningful. You know, that this, from 1966 onwards, there was this, you know, sending people down to the countryside, which he has in common with Wang Qixiang, another Politburo member, uh, taking part in brigades, which he has in common with Li Keqiang. Uh, not so much that his father was out of the picture, because in many ways, people's families all got fragmented right. in the Cultural Revolution. The main thing about his father, Xi Zhongshun, was that he actually disappeared before the Cultural Revolution right. in the early 1960s and didn't really have much contact with him until 79. So it's kind so of... They were um, separate during that period. So it wasn't like mm. the father got sent down to the same place as yeah. Xi Jinping and he actually built a close relationship with yes, his father. Um, I mean, I think they met only once over that whole period, as far as I can tell. So only that is once. very... Yeah, in wow. the early 70s. So it's... You know, this idea of the absent parent, I mean, it's a common thing in the Cultural Revolution. I suppose the only thing that you can say, though, is that despite the complexity and the opac you know, opaqueness of Chinese politics, in an odd way, um, all of these people have very similar experiences, and they're from kind of similar backgrounds. And so what we think of as being very complicated and hard to interpret, their backgrounds are way less diverse than probably politicians in the West because of the similarity of that. Right, because the Cultural Revolution was everywhere in China. Yeah. Yeah. no question. But do you think that makes him decide things in favor of stability rather than reform? Is this one of the driving forces mm -hmm. in kind of what we see in Chinese policy today from him? I think that's part of the consensus that stability must be preserved no matter what. And Is it that helps based upon that kind of experience as a youth? Yeah, I mean, the Cultural Revolution was a very idealistic period, and idealism was very disruptive and created lots of uncertainty in their lives, which I think they don't want to go back to. So I suppose the two things that are important about that is the first is, despite the fact that Xi Jinping personally may feel ambiguous towards the Communist Party for those family experiences, which must have been very traumatizing, he has never done anything except absolute loyalty to the party, presumably because it preserves stability. And in a sense, the party was the victim in the Cultural Revolution of Mao Zedong. And I suppose the second thing is really that it, it shows that idealistic politics, you know, Maoist politics, though we talk of Xi Jinping being a, you know, a Maoist figure, are really not straightforward things in contemporary China. That period was not uh, referred to, certainly Xi Jinping has not referred to it as a very positive period. Uh, and therefore, the kind of Maoist, Maoism that he uses is a sort of Maoism 2.0. It's not really the Maoism from the past, because I think that would be regarded very negatively. When the new dictionary of Chinese biography is done 50 years from now, will the biggest entry be Xi Jinping? Do you think he is going to be the the kind of the major force in what happens in China in the 21st century I, or a more um, transitory figure? Uh, I suspect um, it, so it depends on whether he will stay as a perpetual president, which is of course possible. He might tear up all the rules and rules are being torn up everywhere at the moment across world politics. So he may have a longer life uh, as a politician than uh, we, we, we think at the moment. Uh, but in the end, um, you know, the figures that have been most significant in Chinese recent past have tended to be politicians. 
I wonder though whether people like Jack Ma will be the more formative and influential people in the end. I mean, the, the owner of Alibaba, they'll be the face of China going out into the world. And now the opportunities for China to go much more out in the world. Mm. I wonder whether these figures, uh, you know, are going to become much more part of the way China interacts with the world and shapes the world. In volume four is Deng the seminal figure, Deng Xiaoping the seminal figure in terms of <coughs> most important person since 1949 or Mao? Um, well, I think, so from 79, obviously, Deng Xiaoping has created a framework and one looks along which China goes to this day. Right. And, I mean, no one can say that Xi Jinping... The, the, the DCB is since 49, right? Um, 79, I think. Oh, 79, 79. Yeah. sorry. So Mao Zedong gets treated in one of the earlier volumes, uh, so we don't have to happily answer that question of who... Who's more influential since 49? Xi Jinping's Who's answer, though. Right? Well, Xi Jinping <laughs> does have an answer. Xi Jinping has a very good answer, which is uh, that uh, without Mao Zedong, there would have been no Deng Xiaoping. <laughs> which is a great answer. Well, I have been joined today by Kerry Brown, who was the editor of the Dictionary of Chinese Biography and the author of CEO China, The Rise of Xi Jinping. This discussion has given you a flavor of what is in these two books. They both are must-read for those who want to understand what is going on in modern China. Kerry, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much.